0: This is Christ the King Sunday. I always like to remind people on this Sunday, you know, kind of a a little bit about the the calendar year of the church. Uh, Way back when, before we had printing presses and everybody had books and Bibles and all that kind of stuff, the church had to figure out ways to tell the story and teach the story of Jesus. And if you look at uh, the stained glass windows in the great cathedrals, that's one of the teaching instruments they use for those Pictures that were depicted there. And the other was the calendar of the church year because it tells the story. So this is actually the last Sunday of the church year. Next Sunday will be the first as we begin Advent, Advenir uh, to come. Uh, It's the time in which we'll read the prophecies about the coming of Christ and and the return of Christ as well. And, and, And it will lead us into the season of Christmas, the Christ Mass, celebration of the birth of Christ. That goes on for how many days? 12 days. Yeah, there's 12 days. There really are 12 days in the Christmas season on the church calendar. Uh, So it goes on for 12 days. And that leads us into Epiphany, Epiphanos, which is to shine light across or upon something, to reveal something. This is the time in which Christ is revealed to be the Messiah. And we read those stories in scriptures. That leads us into the season of Lent which uh, is uh, actually from the old English word lengthen, which means lengthen. It's the time of year when the days get longer because apparently they ran out of creativity about church names. Uh, but uh, but it's, it's the season in which we're reading all these passages about Jesus preparing to go to Jerusalem, preparing his disciples for that. Uh, the journey into Jerusalem itself uh, culminating in Good Friday, the crucifixion of Christ, And then that leads us to Easter, the season of the resurrection. And 50 days later uh, we hit Pentecost. That's Pentecost is the count of 50. Uh, And Pentecost is the coming of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church. Then that season runs for about six weeks. And we enter what is called in various churches, uh, some call it Kingdom Tide, a celebration of the kingdom of God being built up on earth. Other people refer to it as ordinary time because it's just ordinary time. Uh, and, and at the end of that season, having told the story, read the history of the church, gone through all of that, uh, it all culminates down to this Sunday, which is Christ the King. The Sunday on which, having heard the whole story, we gather declare that Christ is our King. Um, so that's kind of the, the rundown of the church year. One of the ancient symbols uh, for Christ the King is this. It's, it's called the Cairo. Uh, I know it looks like a PX to you. Uh, it's actually a chi. The X is the chi. It's the first letter of Cairo. Christos in Greek, the P is the Rho, it's the first letter of Ray in Greek, Christos Re, uh, the, the Christ the King, uh, and the Alpha and the Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. So it's Christ the King from the beginning until the end, uh, symbolized in this uh, very uh, uh, ancient uh, symbolism. You can find this on, uh, carved in the walls of churches uh, from way back to around 300 A.D. So a uh, very old symbol of the kingdom of Christ. And as we come and we talk about Christ the King, the questions today i uh, just going to put in front of you are you know, what, does that, what does it mean? And, and what does it mean to say Christ is King? And what does it mean to say Christ is my King? Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for gathering us on this day to come and, and celebrate that you are indeed the Lord of our hearts and our lives And we ask that you just open us up to understand that um, and hear what you say to us. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So in the uh, the 1700s, uh, Captain James Cook made his three famous voyages of discovery across the South Pacific. Um, and much of the mapping he did, the cartography of that time, uh, still kind of shapes our understanding of the South Pacific region. He was the first to visit a number of them uh, crossing back and forth the ocean uh, in his uh, ship, the Endeavor. And and as he did that, it was interesting when you read his accounts of these, when he encounters these islands and the, the people that live on them in Polynesia, uh, he often talks about the fierce warriors he encounters. Now, you know, Captain Cook was, was a military guy, and I kind of wonder. You know, it's, it's the old saying, you know, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Uh, so I kind of wonder if the fact that he was military, he didn't assume that that's what he was encountering, because a lot of the people that came behind him did not encounter these people uh, in the same way and found them actually to be very gracious. Uh, but one of the islands that he went to, uh, one of the areas he went to, was an archipelago known as the Tuamatus. Uh, and, and as he came there, he found that the people there were, were large. They were just physically imposing uh, people. And he felt like these were really fierce warriors. But because they were and because they were large, he thought, boy, if we can just get them on our side, they'll be a really great ally uh, to have. And so he suggested that they needed to be, quote, civilized uh, and, uh, and, and suggested that Christian missionaries be dispatched there as quickly as possible. And they were. They were. Uh, missionaries from England came there uh, arrived there within a year Uh, they found the people of the the islands to be uh, very gracious uh, to be very welcoming uh, very friendly Uh, they had a great encounter with them Uh, They were very open to receiving the Christian faith and in the span of about three years the whole archipelago, all the islands in that group had been evangelized. Even the king of the islands had accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. And so uh, it was considered a rousing success uh, and and just received with open arms. Um, Toward the end of that three year period of time one of the supply ships from England arrived and they, they brought word to one of the missionaries Uh, that his, his father and his brother had both died and that therefore the family wanted him to return home to run the family estate so he was to leave on that ship because they only came you know like every six months was when they came by so he was to get on board that particular ship it was a very sudden departure and with great heaviness of heart he went and told the king that he was going to have to leave and go home uh, the king said, you know, you, you can't leave without us giving you a proper farewell. And so he said, before you go, we, we need to have a great celebration of all that you've done here. They gathered people from all over the islands, came in, they built a big fire, they had a great feast in celebration of this missionary. Um, and, and as they were there that night before the missionary was to leave uh, in, in this great feast with all this wonderful food, the missionary noticed that the king was making sure that everyone else got fed. Even sometimes taking food to some of the others. And he did not sit down to eat until he saw that everyone who was there had plenty. And so the missionary turned to him and said, King, this is, this is really uh, amazing to see. He said, you know, in our country, uh, the king is considered you know, someone of privilege and, and honor. And so he always receives the first and the best of everything that we have at a feast like this and he eats first. And, and if one of us was to get our food and begin to eat before the king did uh, it would be considered offense. We could, we could be sent to prison or worse for that. And the king of the Tuamatu said well that, that's puzzling. He said you've taught me about our heavenly king and how he is. He says how is it that you could follow an earthly king who is so different from our heavenly Father? So when I say Christ the King, what what image does that bring to your mind? You know, for many of us in, in the states, you know, the in the colonies formerly, uh, you know, we kind of had this negative image about that word King. Uh, you know, the, the tyrant, the one who rules, and 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 sometimes with good reason for that. I mean, sometimes have that. Uh, the church adopted that language in out of an understanding of of the role of the king and and the citizen of the state or the vassal of the state. Uh, The the king was the one who who protected the people. Uh, He provided the troops and and armor and and protected the people that lived in a region. He also set the laws in place that organized the life of that region as a society and, and made sure that people lived by those laws so that the people could live there safely and engage in commerce and also so that they didn't have to fear outsiders attacking them in return for that the people of the kingdom owed honor and loyalty to him they gave obedience to the laws that he provided and they provided support both for the king and for the army that the king raised it was a mutually beneficial arrangement and, and that is when the, the church began to use this language and talk about this. That's what they were drawing on long, long back in history. Uh, the old covenants of the Old Testament are all this kind of king and vassal treaty kind of language. Uh, so e- even before the time of Christ they were reaching back and, and using this language to talk about this and help us understand that, that, that God in Christ is our king. He, he protects us from sin and death. He gives meaning and purpose to our life by telling us these are the ways to live to have life and have abundant living. And we in turn as His people give Him honor and loyalty and obedience and follow Him uh, and, and we provide support to Him by not only sharing His Word but by supporting the ministries. So, so there's this kind of arrangement that the church understood that, and and Paul, when he writes about that, uh, he he's trying to describe this and and um, you know kind of help us. Oh well, first I'm going to read this story from John. This, this I want to come into this. This is one of the pivotal stories where this kind of idea of kingdom gets kicked around a little bit. Uh, this is Jesus. He's been arrested. He's gone through the first round of trial. Pilate's gone out to the people and said, you know, I don't I really, I don't see anything going on. They've yelled, and, and you know, the, the crowd has called for him to be uh, crucified. And so he's gone back in, and, and he summons Jesus, and he asks him, are, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus says, Is that your own idea, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? And Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. And with this he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. What is truth? What is truth? So when we think about king, what does it mean to be a true king? What is truth? That that three-word three, phrase, three word phrase Pilate uses, what is truth? I mean, we hear it uh, at, at, with a tremendous amount of cynicism and behind it and sarcasm on, on Pilate's part. But actually, that's a really good question. It's a really good question for us to ask. Because we always assume we know what, that word means, but it actually has more than one meaning. Uh, in philosophy, there's a whole branch of, of uh, philosophy called epistemology, which is, is all about studying what is true and how do you know something's true and how do you talk about that? And, and they define truth in different kind of ways. There's a, a logical or ideal kind of truth where, where it's true because it follows from certain ideas, Uh, And if you actually do the logic kind of training in that, it will look very much like an algebra equation when it's written out. And it's the simple kind of stuff like if the value of 1 is 1, then 1 plus 1 equals 2. It's true. It just follows. You know, if A, then B. I mean, there's just these kind of things that that just follow logically. And interestingly enough, that's probably one of the, the uses of truth... That uh, we, we play fast and loose with the most. Uh, you know, my, my son also has a philosophy degree, and so, you know, we, we listen to some of these arguments and things that go on, and, and we're listening to it, and we're going, really? Really? Is anybody really going to buy that? But people do. People listen to it because they don't think through the process of it. But it's one of the the earliest and the oldest meanings of the word true. This kind of logical kind of idea of following from idea in a logical kind of sequence. So that's one way of looking at truth. Another way is to talk about empirical truth. Empirical truth is what we, in our culture, are more familiar with, science and technology, uh, where things can be me- uh, measured, weighed, uh, you know, how long it is, how deep it is, what does it weigh, what happens when you put this object together with this object, how do they interact with each other, uh, and, and so it's a, it's a very useful tool for us in trying to figure out how the world is working around us, uh, and we've used it to tremendous benefit Uh, and we use it a lot. Uh, In the empirical method, when you're trying to figure things out, you propose a theory about how something works, and then you test it to see if that theory actually holds up. And if you get one example that that theory doesn't support, it means your theory is incorrect and needs to be modified or redone. Now, it's interesting to me that, that in our technological world that people will make theories, and even though they don't test out, they'll continue to assert them. Claiming that that's science when it's not. Uh, it's also interesting that we don't always understand the limitations of that. Uh, in empirical theory, you cannot prove cause and effect. You can prove that things happen in conjunction. This event's associated with this event, but you can't prove that one causes the other. Uh, there's a lot of interesting kind of limits to what it can do. But if you observe those limits, it's a very useful tool. That's one kind of truth. There's what we call existential truth. It has to do with uh, my experience of of the world, how I see the world and how I encounter the world around me. So uh, as somebody that grew up in South Texas and uh, grew up in a certain family with a certain history and certain events, I have kind of a certain way of seeing and interpreting the world, which is going to be different from the way most of you will do it. Now, now, that doesn't mean that what I experience isn't true, and it doesn't mean that what you experience isn't true. And in fact, it's an existential truth. We can have kind of differing ideas, and they can both be true. This happens in my house all the time, Uh, you know, on a lot of theories. But, you know, the the easiest one I can tell you is that, that, you know, I I see color differently than my wife sees color. And and I'll see something, and, and, you know, she'll see it, and we'll have different opinions about it. She'll go, oh, you're not going to wear that, are you? Well... Yeah, that's uh, what I was going to wear. Oh, oh no, you can't wear that together. Those don't go together. It looks fine to me. Nope, nope, nope. Those colors don't go together. You can't wear that together. Now, she's right and I'm right. Because we see it different. And, And existentially, we're both right. It's true for both of us. That's one kind of truth. There's a kind of truth that has to do with coherence to an ideal. Uh, And in this case, like if we were going to talk about the color red, if we define red as a certain color spectrum and, and, you know, define that in a wavelength and all that kind of of technical empirical thing, this is what red looks like, then we could take a, a sample of red and we could say, that's a true red because it's very close to this ideal that we've just defined. So that's coherence. It's true to the ideal. And we can also talk about that in terms of relational kind of things, faithfulness, uh, in a friendship or in a marriage, you know, a spouse or a friend can be true to the other in faithfulness and in loyalty. That's also a way of talking about truth. And within religious traditions, we'll talk about revealed truth, which is a truth that comes from God outside of our, our living, the God who is above and beyond us, who communicates truth to us that oftentimes we can't see or define but that we believe and trust on the basis of the one who shares that truth with us. And it's called revealed truth. And in our tradition at least, that, that is most clearly in, in the Scriptures and in the Scripture made flesh, Jesus Christ. So that He becomes the truth to us. Above and beyond all of our definitions of truth are God's definitions of truth. So when Paul says, what is true? He's he's struggling with this. I mean, he doesn't, he, what, what's going on? What are we in the middle of? And a lot of us also, we talk about what's what's true and not true, we wrestle with that. Because here's Jesus who is a king and yet not a king in the way the world understands it. Somehow or another, he is cohering to a different ideal. He's faithful to a different ideal. He is being revealed to us as a truth that is different from what we would define. Paul tries to kind of flesh that out for us and and give us some pictures of that. He says, The the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him, and for Him. He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. So we have this cosmic vision of of who this king is who is in the beginning and in the end. Remember the Alpha and the Omega, he's the king at the beginning and the end. Everything is made through him and everything is connected to him and reconciled to him through his offering of himself on the cross. In Revelation, uh, John records these words as, the, as he writes to the churches. To the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne. Now, the seven spirits are the spirits of the seven churches. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth. Look, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of Him. So shall it be. Amen. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the King at the beginning and at the end and at the present. The King of all that is over all time. And when John writes that and he puts that word amen in there, uh, that's a word that in in Greek literally means uh, it's true, or I agree, or I believe it. You know, we we like to just use that as a way to signify the end of a prayer, right? That's how you know, oh, they said amen, the prayer is over. Now, now you're getting ready to have Thanksgiving, and I'm just going to tell you, if, if you had Thanksgiving dinner, my grandmother was still around, she would remind you when you're praying that it's time to pray. Don't go to preaching. And if you pray too long in the middle of your prayer, my grandmother would go, "Amen," <laughs> meaning it's time to shut up and eat. You know what? Bless the meat, curse the skin. Come on, folks, dig in. Right? The whole method. So, I mean, I'm telling you, this is the way she was. So, you know, we we sometimes found ourselves cut off in our prayers because we prayed too long. But but in John here, what he's saying is, I believe this. This is true. We agree that this is true. Amen. We believe this to be true. He, he was in the beginning. He is in the end. He's in the present. He's the king over all. He's the firstborn from the dead, and, and at the end of the ages, he's the one we'll see. And the reason that he's the king is because his sacrifice has made it possible for us to live. So this is the king that, that Scripture is, is describing not, not the kind of king that's a tyrant, not the kind of king that takes advantage of his people, but the one who puts himself between us and sin and death. I mean with all the voices that call for your allegiance, all the voices that call for your loyalty, all the voices that call for your support are, are, how many of them how many of them are willing to die for you? And yet in Christ, God has already done that for you. That's the kind of true king. That's the kind of true king that Scripture talks about. So back to the islands, back to the Tuamotus. The next morning after the great feast, they gather on the beach. Because you can see out there just offshore, you can see the edge there, the lighter color. That's the edge of the reef. And and the larger ships can't come across that. So what they have are, are smaller boats that are called lighters. And, and the lighter would, uh, you know, ferry goods back and forth from the ship to the beach. And, uh, and, and as they're there and the missionary is waiting for the lighter to come in that's going to take him out to the ships to leave, the king is standing beside him and looking out there at that ship on the other side of the reef and the small boats. And he says, you know, he says, I can remember standing on this beach when I was a young boy with my father, who was then the king. And a great storm came in and the waves were breaking over the reef. And as we looked out, we saw some fishermen of our people who had been out in the ocean and whose boat had been capsized by the waves, and they were stranded on the reef. And I can remember my father got one of the boats off the beach and pushed it in the water, and he paddled out onto the reef. And as he was out there, he realized that the fishermen were already too weak to get in the boat on their own, so he jumped in the water, and he lifted them one by one into the boat. And then realizing that if if he got in the boat, it would be too loaded to survive the waves. He pushed the boat off towards shore with a fisherman and remained on the reef. And several days later, when his body washed ashore, there was a great celebration of his life right here. And we built a great bonfire. And I can remember thinking, I hope that someday I can honor my people, and serve them the same way. And he turned to the missionary and he says, this is what a true king is. So my brothers and sisters, what kind of king do you want in your life? Jesus is the true king. And are you willing to proclaim your loyalty to him let us pray father we offer thanks that you come to reign over us not as tyrant but as one whose love is poured out on us as one who places his very life between us and sin and death as one who comes to bring us life and and life abundant And so we come this morning and we offer ourselves to you, our true King. We do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.